good evening class we're listening to some music as usual so listen and see if you can figure out what this might be Any guesses? That particular piece was the Prayer of St. Francis, and it is a choral setting of it, and here was sung for us by the Westminster Abbey Choir in the UK. And of course, it is a great accompaniment for this 24th letter in screw tape which if you've had the opportunity to engage you will know that it is talking about the idea of spiritual pride and so of course we'll be talking about some of the antidotes for that as we look at screw tape for this week so i would encourage you to have your book ready have a highlighter ready and uh, we are going to jump into some of the beauties and wisdom of this letter. But before we do that, let's begin with a word of prayer. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of these letters. We thank you for the remarkable and indeed uncanny way in which they seem so very relevant to our lives today, even in this time of this pandemic. Lord, we pray that you would help us to learn from Lewis's wisdom here, wisdom that is rooted in your word, and that through that we would be conformed more and more to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. So tonight we're going to uh, be looking at letter 24, as I mentioned, and it takes a little bit of a turn. We're still talking about uh, the patient's relationship with this disgusting girl from the Christian household that Screwtape is still very upset about, but we're getting back to focusing on some of the patient's foibles a little bit and not so much on the themes of love and marriage. But to begin, let us uh, start with our scripture verse from Ephesians uh, and if you have that in front of you, please say that with me. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. 
in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And again, this is a great verse to remember and to give us context for this battle in which we find ourselves. And part of what is great about this verse is that it goes back to that other scripture verse, resist the devil and he will flee from you, which Lewis quotes on the frontispiece of the Screwtape Letters. It is a reminder that as believers, we need to be proactive in this battle and not just waiting around hiding. So, Again, why are we studying these letters today? Why are they so relevant for us? And of course, the first reason is to remind us that we are indeed in a spiritual battle. And if you are in a battle, you need to understand the nature of the battle and the nature of your enemy. And the screw tape letters help us tremendously with both those things. Secondly, we're studying these letters to try to help us learn to think Christianly and to develop a Christian worldview. And we'll be talking some this evening about uh, some particular ways of thinking that are very important. Thirdly, to get lessons on the psychology of temptation, to look at where Satan is trying to get at us. And we'll see again in this letter tonight that Satan has been studying the situation, studying the patient, studying the girl and her family, and looking for a chink in the armor as a way in. That is a good reminder to us that part of the nature of temptation is that Satan looks for chinks in our armor to exploit. Fourthly, lessons on habits to cultivate to deepen our faith in Christ. And fifthly, lessons on living a boldly Christian life, a life where Christianity is not just a side dish on the banquet of our life, but instead is the marinade that touches every aspect of who we are and transforms us into someone that the devil is not happy to see. So, We've talked again and again and again about the importance of habits and just a reminder that those things that we hold in our heads but don't ever allow to form into habits don't really get us anywhere. They leave us in that state that Screwtape loves of having good intentions. And it's no accident that that old proverb says the road to hell is paved with those same good intentions. So we don't want to just have feelings. We want feelings that issue into actions and actions that issue into habits. So to review from some of the previous letters uh, that we've been talking about recently, we're going to look at those habits and see how tonight's letter helps to build upon those. So going back to letter 20, the habits to annoy the devil from that are first to hold fast to the truth that Satan's attacks do not last forever and to stand firm against yielding. You'll remember in that letter that Screwtape berates Wormwood for having attacked and attacked and attacked for so long with his temptation on the patient's chastity that 
finally, the enemy, God, had to intervene. And the disaster of that is not only the intervention, but exposing the lie that Satan's attacks are irresistible and that the only way to end them is to give in. The second habit, cultivate an identity that is grounded, rooted in your being made in the image of God and resist cultural pressure to define yourself simply in terms of your sexual desires. Up until a few generations, or really even one generation ago, the idea that most people would be defining themselves uh, according to what their sexual preferences and desires are would have been laughable. People thought it was inappropriate to talk about those things. And yet now, uh, particularly if you were on a college campus, one of the first things that you have to do is to choose pronouns by which you would like to be identified, pronouns that are all based in your sexual preferences. Now, of course, our sexuality is part of who God created us to be. It's not something that is chosen according to Christian theology. And this whole idea that that is the only way to define ourselves is something that finds no support whatever in the scriptures. Thirdly, understand that physical beauty is fleeting and resist focusing on outward appearances and being seduced by societal notions of what constitutes beauty. We live in a culture that is obsessed with outward appearances. Uh, there are a lot of jokes during this pandemic about people whose uh, natural hair color, shall we say, is beginning to be exposed by this pandemic. And some people are really, really upset about that. And part of the reason for that is that there's such an emphasis on outward appearance and the idea that if we're not looking young and beautiful, that somehow we are less worthy. There also is the whole idea that we need to uh, follow whatever the culture says is beautiful in the moment. And those of us who have achieved a certain age are well aware of the vagaries of fashion and what's considered beautiful and how it changes based on what the media are feeding us. As Christians, we are called to resist all this, to cultivate beauty of the heart, to cultivate inward beauty and love, and to not base our identity in the things that the world considers to be pretty or fashionable. The next habit is to cultivate a scriptural perspective on the opposite sex and be wary of the objectification of men and women. There's so much in our culture right now that says it's all about how we look and it's all about our bodies. And certainly being healthy is a good thing. Uh, scripture tells us our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit that they're given us by God. But the obsession uh, that pervades our culture about looking good and the idea of having a body that is desirable uh, for others is not rooted in scripture at all. And media plays on these wrong ideas and objectifies the bodies of men and women in a way that is demeaning and treats them uh, simply as animals to be desired and consumed for our own pleasure. And then fifthly, hold fast to a Christian view 
of marriage that's based on scriptural standards and not on this idea of feelings of being in love. Now, as I've said each week as we've talked about this, feelings of being in love are great. But the problem is that they're not sustainable. They do not last forever. Uh, as Lewis says elsewhere, our feelings about things, not just about being in love, but about everything, really are mostly a product of how much sleep we've had, what we've had to eat, uh, what sort of crises we may have dealt with during the day. They are not the result of profound attitudes uh, and scripture that is rooted in our heart. Scripture tells us that a Christian view of marriage is based on um, mutual faith that are shared by the partners in the marriage uh, and an attitude of servanthood toward one another that is rooted in their reverence and submission to Jesus Christ. Then from letter 21, Habits to Annoy the Devil Some More. This was that great letter about peevishness, uh, a particularly apt word uh, for those of us uh, who are feeling a little bit of cabin fever, feeling a little cooped up, feeling a little sorry for ourselves during this time. And so Satan, uh, through his agent Wormwood, says peevishness is to be greatly encouraged because it's something the enemy loves and that he particularly enjoys exploiting. And therefore, to annoy the devil, we should refuse to embrace peevishness. Instead, we should try to cultivate good humor and kindness, to not allow our inner calm and peace based in our relationship with Christ and who he is to be disturbed by the circumstances of our daily lives. If we do that, if we cultivate good humor and kindness, we will annoy the devil, particularly in these times of pandemic. And we will stand out against a culture that is full of complaining and asserting our rights. Which leads us to the next habit. View life and each day, each hour, and indeed each moment as a gift from God and not an entitlement. We are seeing playing out right in front of us the natural consequences of our culture's move toward considering so many things as entitlements. We're seeing people rebelling uh, on all sorts of uh, different issues and on both ends of the political continuum about measures that have been put in place during this pandemic. And it is a reminder that we are not entitled to anything, that the very breath of life in us is a gift from God and each moment is a gift from God and we should treat it as such, as something to be treasured and given up to God's service. Thirdly, cultivate a framework for your life that is based on an understanding of stewardship rather than ownership as the underlying principle. Stewardship is something that we don't really think about very much as Christians, but it pervades scripture all the way from the book of Genesis right through to the book of Revelation. And the problem for many of us is we live in a fiercely independent culture where we think that we make what we have, we own it, it's ours, and it is our job to defend it against anyone who might want to try to take it away from us. 
And it is a great reminder that that is a concept that is called foolish in scripture. Um, Jesus tells that parable of the fool who tries to build bigger barns, thinking he's going to control all of his own future. And then that night, his life is demanded of him. Fourthly, consider daily. And those are two important words. Consider that word that means to think about with deliberation and to take time thinking daily, regularly, as part of our routine. The fact that as a Christian, you are not your own, but you are sold in service to the Lord. That your body, the breath of life within it, are not your own, but God's creation, God's possession. And they are to be used in his service and not surrendered to Satan's conquest. It is all too easy for us to begin to believe that we own things and that therefore we are not in service to anyone. But as Christians, we need to be reminded that when Jesus paid with his life on the cross and then rose with his glorious resurrection power on Easter, he did that to set us free from the bondage of sin and death, but to transfer us to his kingdom where we are in service to him. And then fifthly, resist using that word mine. Uh, it is a reminder if you spent much time with a three-year-old lately, anyone who encroaches on that three-year-old's territory or a beloved toy may hear mine yelled out in a none too friendly voice. And the problem for many of us is that we are like that about our lives and our possessions and our relationships. And what Screwtape reminds us is that the devil wants us to feel that way. Whenever we start saying mine, uh, we get on a very slippery slope. And there's a beautiful section that I commend to your rereading at the end of letter 21 about hey, how saying something like my boots is easily transferred to my dog, then to my wife and my children, and then to my God. And we begin to feel that we own those things and those people in the same way that we own boots and therefore can treat them in the same way. And that brings us to that marvelous letter 22, uh, the hilarious one about the patient falling in love and how it sends screw tape really over the edge and around the bend with disgust. So the first habit there is to seek deep Christian commitment as the most important quality in dating relationships. We've seen that this annoys the devil more than anything in the whole book, except when the patient becomes a Christian. So uh, that means we can annoy the devil in the same way by seeking after deep Christian commitment as the foundation for our dearest relationships. And then secondly, live joyfully into the bounty of pleasures that God has created. We are reminded by Screwtape that Satan has never been able to invent even one pleasure. And he talks uh, with great disgust about how God is a hedonist at heart and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
So therefore, the necessary concomitant of that is that as Christians, one way we can annoy the devil is to enjoy those pleasures God has given us, to appreciate them, to look back along the great sunlight and sunbeam of that pleasure, back to the source, to God, and to give him thanks for those simple pleasures. The third habit, cultivate a family and home deeply infused with the love of Jesus Christ, filled with beauty and agape love for others. After his disgust with the girl herself, the next thing that makes Screwtape crazy is this girl's household, how the whole place is tainted with this nasty love that they can't understand, and the impenetrable cloud and the impenetrable mystery, uh, the great nemesis for Screwtape that clouds his vision and makes it impossible for him and his minions and Satan himself to even see what's going on, pervades that household. And of course, it is the presence of the Holy Spirit and this disinterested love uh, with which the people in that household are treating one another. It affects everyone who comes into that household, visitors, workmen, even the cat and dog. And it's a reminder to us of the power of real Christian hospitality, the power of real Christian love displayed in a household and how it can be transformative. And perhaps even more so than ever, and our culture today that is so gripped with despair and loneliness. Fourth habit, glory in the beauty and wonder of music. Remember how Screwtape says, music and silence, how I detest them both. One day we will make the whole world into a giant noise. Screwtape is reminding us here that music is a gift from God and something that can elevate our souls. We know it is one of those things that will be with us in heaven, music that is focused on praising and glorifying God. And the more that we embrace that kind of music, the more that the presence of the Holy Spirit uh, and the presence of God's kingdom can pervade our lives. And linked to that in the fifth habit is to embrace the beauty and wonder of silence. That silence that maybe some of us are getting in touch with a little bit more in this pandemic. The silence that allows us to hear the sound of the birds, to hear the lap of water, to hear the breeze rustling in the trees or the stillness in the nighttime as we behold the beauty of the stars and the moon. Silence is something that we have banished from our culture uh, by turning on media the instant we get up, by that awkwardness that we feel when there's not noise or something going on to distract us from looking inward, experiencing our souls. It is a reminder of that deep truth from Mother Teresa, we need silence to touch the soul. So by embracing silence and making it part of our routine, we can annoy the devil. And related to that, the sixth habit, reject being constantly surrounded by sound and noise. Screwtape says in this letter he wants to surround us every moment of every day with sound and noise. And think again about how prophetic Lewis is here 
Uh, the 1940s were full of silence compared to today, where many people sleep with earbuds in, walk with earbuds in, work with earbuds in. They've got music or video or whatever in front of them almost 24-7. And we as Christians are to reject that. And then seventh, uh, drawing on the end of that great letter 22, remember that transformation is the work of the Holy Spirit and not of our own efforts or those of the life force. Uh, lest we congratulate ourselves on our spiritual progress, uh, we need to constantly be reminded that transformation comes by throwing ourselves at the foot of the cross and begging for Jesus to change our hearts. It does not come by pulling ourselves up from our bootstraps or by embracing, may the force be with you. Despite what our culture says, transformation is the work of the Holy Spirit. And that kind of transformation annoys the devil. And then from letter 24 last week, uh, remember he starts the letter off saying how thoroughly annoyed he is by the kind of Christians that are in this household. Not just nominal Christians, but deeply intelligent Christians who see everything through the lens of faith, who share with one another and encourage one another and have deep conversations about their faith, about beauty, truth, and goodness. And so the habit to annoy the devil is to spend time with deeply committed and intelligent Christians. One of the great traps that Satan has set for us is to get Christians to spend time together but to not ever talk about their Christian faith, to not ever sharpen one another or encourage one another, to talk instead just about the stuff that's on the news or what's going on in the culture. And we need to resist that. And particularly in this time of pandemic, when it's hard to be with people, we can resolve all the more strongly that when we are able to be together again, that we will treasure that time and make the most of it. The second habit is to be watchful about missing, mixing theology and politics. Screwtape says that the gospel's emphasis on social justice is easy to twist and to get Christians to buy into the idea that their politics are more important than their relationship with God, or even worse, that they're the same thing. And that when that happens, Christians, instead of being identified with Jesus, are identified with a political position and are therefore marginalized and lose that characteristic that Jesus says is supposed to define us, love for others. Thirdly, beware of new constructions of the historical Jesus. The 20th century and the 21st have been probably the great hotbeds of the historical Jesus, a refiguring of Jesus every few years uh, around some great cause or another. And what Screwtape says is that if you can get people to focus on that historical Jesus, then the real Jesus of scripture and worship fades into the background. Fourthly, we are to focus proactively on our relationship with Jesus, not just in knowing about him or his teaching, but being in his presence, worshiping him, experiencing him through worship 
and through his presence in the sacraments, through his presence when two or three gather in his name, focus together where the Holy Spirit comes and is with us. Because when we focus just on Jesus's teaching, we risk missing out on Jesus himself. It's just like that old analogy of there's a big difference about knowing about the Queen of England and actually being her friend. There is something uh, profoundly personal and intimate and real about being in relationship with someone that no amount of head knowledge will ever equal. Fifthly, hold fast to the centrality of Jesus's resurrection and God's plan of redemption as the core of our faith. Remember that Screwtape says that you don't want as a tempter for people to think about Jesus's resurrection as a fact and certainly not to think about God's plan of redemption. Because if you can get people focused on other things, to focus on uh, different aspects of Jesus's teaching or different aspects of this or that, you can sow discord and you can get people off of the main point because the transformative thing, the thing that gave wings to the gospel, the core of the gospel itself is that Jesus died on the cross, but not just that, that he rose from the dead and that with that resurrection brought in the fullness of the kingdom of God. And that when we understand that and God's plan of redemption to save sinners from their sins and transfer them from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, that is a whole different thing than some obedience to moral laws. So Screwtape, of course, doesn't want us to understand any of these things. He wants the patient, and that includes all of us, to be consumed with other things and not focused on Jesus's resurrection and the wonder of that that will drive us into Jesus's presence. And then sixthly, live proactively each day in the understanding of Christ's kingdom as the truth and overarching reality of your life, rather than seeing Christianity as a means to an end. This is related to what Screwtape had to say about politics. And it's the idea that when we embrace any cause as the major thing in our life, um, we very subtly cross a very important boundary of using our faith as a means to an end. Now, there are certainly lots of causes that are worth our time and our effort, but none of them even comes close to the kingdom of God and its importance. And therefore, we must view everything through a kingdom lens in order to be able to do what God calls us to. When we get away from that, when we put any cause above the kingdom of God, we risk alienating others and we abandon the gospel imperative. So there's a lot of food for thought in these past few letters, and we have even more in this new letter that we are going to hit tonight. So get out your books, uh, get ready to underline and highlight, and let's jump in to letter 24. My dear Wormwood, 
I've been in correspondence with Slum Trumpet, who is in charge of your patient's young women, and I begin to see a chink in her armor. It is an unobtrusive little vice, which she shares with nearly all women who have grown up in an intelligent circle, united by a clearly defined belief, and it consists in a quite untroubled assumption that the outsiders who do not share this belief are really too stupid and ridiculous. The males who habitually meet these outsiders do not feel that way. Their confidence, if they are confident, is of a different kind. Hers, which she supposes to be due to faith, is in reality largely due to the mere color she has taken from her surroundings. It is not, in fact, very different from the conviction she would have felt at the age of 10 that the kind of fish knives used in her father's house were the proper or normal or real kind, while those of neighboring families were not real fish knives at all. Now, the element of ignorance and naivete in this is so large, and the element of spiritual pride so small, that it gives us little hope of the girl herself. But have you thought of how it can be made to influence your own patient? It is always the novice who exaggerates. The man who has risen in society is over-refined. The young scholar is pedantic. In this new circle, your patient is a novice. He is there daily meeting Christian life of a quality he never before imagined and seeing it all through an enchanted glass because he is in love. He is anxious. Indeed, the enemy commands him to imitate this quality. Can you get him to imitate this defect in his mistress and to exaggerate it? until what was venial in her becomes in him the strongest and most beautiful of the vices, spiritual pride. The conditions seem ideally favorable. The new circle in which he finds himself is one in which he is tempted to be proud for many reasons other than its Christianity. It is a better educated, more intelligent, more agreeable society, society than any that he has yet encountered. He is also under some degree of illusion as to his own place in it. Under the influence of love, he may still think himself unworthy of the girl, but he is rapidly ceasing to think of himself as unworthy of the others. He has no notion how much in him is forgiven because they are charitable and made the best of because he is now one of the family. He does not dream how much of his conversation, how many of his opinions are recognized by them all as mere echoes of their own. Still less does he suspect how much of the delight he takes in these people is due to the erotic enchantment which the girl for him spreads over all her surroundings. He thinks that he likes their talk and way of life because of some congruity between their spiritual state and his own, when in fact they are so far beyond him that if he were not in love, 
he would merely be puzzled and repelled by much that he now accepts. He is like a dog, which should imagine it understood firearms, because its hunting instinct and love for its master enable it to enjoy a day's shooting. Here is your chance. While the enemy, by means of sexual love and some very agreeable people far advanced in his service, is drawing the young barbarian up to levels he could never otherwise have reached, you must make him feel that he is finding his own level, that these people are his sort, and that coming among them, he has come home. When he turns from them to other society, he will find it dull, partly because almost any society within his reach is, in fact, much less entertaining, but still more because he will miss the enchantment of the young woman. You must teach him to mistake his contrast between the circle that delights and the circle that bores him for the contrast between Christians and unbelievers. He must be made to feel, he'd better not put it into words, how different we Christians are. And by we Christians, he must really but unknowingly mean my set. And by my set, he must mean not the people who in their charity and humility have accepted me, but the people with whom I associate by right. Success here depends on confusing him. If you try to make him explicitly and professedly proud of being a Christian, you will probably fail. The enemy's warnings are too well known. If, on the other hand, you let the idea of we Christians drop out altogether and merely make him complacent about his set, you will produce not true spiritual pride, but mere social vanity, which by comparison is a trumpery, a puny little sin. What you want is to keep a sly self-congratulation mixing with all his thoughts and never allow him to raise the question, what precisely am I congratulating myself about? The idea of belonging to an inner ring, of being in a secret, is very sweet to him. Play on that nerve. Teach him, using the influence of this girl when she is silliest, to adopt an air of amusement at the things that unbelievers say. Some theories which he may meet in modern Christian circles may here prove helpful theories. I mean that place the hope of society in some inner ring of clerks, some trained minority of theocrats. It is no affair of yours whether those theories are true or false. The great thing is to make Christianity a mystery religion in which he feels himself one of the initiates. 
pray do not fill your letters with rubbish about this European war. Its final issue is no doubt important, but that is a matter for the high command. I am not in the least interested in knowing how many people in England have been killed by bombs. In what state of mind they died, I can learn from the office in this end. That they were going to die sometime, I knew already. Please keep your mind on your work. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Well, once again, this letter is full of things that are right on point for today, and perhaps for some of us, a few things that might be a little bit too close to home for comfort. So let's look at the habits from this week's letter. The first habit is be wary of making assumptions about those who do not share your beliefs. You can see in the letter how Screwtape wants to use this girl's ignorance about others, mistaken opinions, prejudices that she has. They're based not on experience, but just on ideas of others. Screwtape wants to blow all of that up into full-blown judgment and superiority, making all sorts of assumptions based on a straw man. And scripture, of course, commands us not to do that. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 7, famously says, Judge not that you be not judged, for by the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Strong words from Jesus about judging, particularly in an age where judgmental is the adjective most likely to be applied to Christians. And then from 2 Corinthians 5, so from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. We regard no one from a worldly point of view. That puts paid to all of our prejudices and reminds us to see through the eyes of Christ, that we are all beggars showing other beggars where to find bread, and the only place for that is the foot of the cross. The second habit is to beware of spiritual pride as one of the devil's strongest vices. Notice how excited Screwtape gets about spiritual pride. It is one of the things that he loves. That means it's something we want to run from at all costs. And there are so many passages about this in Scripture, but then one of the most important is this beautiful passage from Philippians 3. And I'm only looking at uh, verses 7 through 9, but really the whole chapter is right on point for this. Here Paul says this, But whatever gain I had, I counted loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith 
Nothing in Paul's life is worth anything compared to knowing Christ. All his accomplishments, all the things in which he could legitimately take pride, he counts as nothing, as rubbish, compared to the worth of knowing Jesus Christ. And then Jesus himself tells a great parable to the Pharisees, who are our greatest exemplars of the dangers of spiritual pride. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 18. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Ouch. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is a familiar passage, but I think it is one that we do well to slow down and contemplate, to think about what it means that the Pharisee stood up and is praying, telling God about how great he is, while all the while looking down on this tax collector. The tax collector, who would have been totally rejected by society as unworthy, is the one that Jesus says goes home justified, not because of his good works, but because of his attitude of praying to God for mercy. More on that in a minute. The third habit, cultivate humility and an awareness of your own unworthiness, but for Christ. If you are like me, you are all too good at thinking of reasons why you are so great. It is part of being human. But part of being a Christian means to cultivate humility and an awareness of our own unworthiness. Not to despair, but to rejoice in Christ-worthiness, which is rooted in us. And this is uh, another great passage from 1 uh, Corinthians. Paul says here uh, in 1 Corinthians 1, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were before you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose us not because we were strong or brilliant or anything like that, but because we were weak and pitiful. And through our weakness, his strength can be shown. And then, of course, in Romans, 
Paul in Romans 12, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you to not think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. It is a reminder not to become puffed up, to realize that humility is important and that when we understand that we are sinners saved only by the grace of God every day, no matter how long we have walked with Jesus, that is the root of understanding Christ's love for us and love for others and being able to share that risen Christian life with others without seeming to be proud. Galatians 2.20 reminds us, I am crucified with Christ, not, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. For the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. It is vital that we remember this as we seek to share the gospel with a broken and hurting world. The next habit, flee from embracing any sort of superior inner ring. This is such a difficult thing because all of us want to be in the know. We want to be in the inner ring. We want to be the ones who are the initiates, who have the full story. And when someone says they can't tell us something uh, because it has to be held confidential, we get so annoyed. It just seems so unfair. And we even will put down the people who can't tell us and pressure them to try to. And of course, if you happen to be one of the ones who does know something that others don't know, sometimes it is easy to take a sly pleasure in saying, oh, I can't tell you that. Lewis wrote a great essay about this, uh, but one of my favorite passages before we talk about Lewis's essay is the passage from John chapter 9. And if you haven't read John chapter 9 in a while, I commend it to you. And I would suggest you read it in a couple of different translations or paraphrases. Um, and I would especially suggest including the message or the New Living Translation as one of those. Because this passage is actually quite funny. Uh, it is a beautiful passage where Jesus does an amazing miracle, but it is also one that shows the true stripes of the Pharisees perhaps more vividly than any of the others, except in those where they want to condemn Jesus to death when he does miracles that heal people. And you'll remember in this passage that Jesus and the disciples are walking and they hear this man calling out to Jesus, this blind man asking for Jesus to heal him. And the disciples ask, why was this man blind? Was it his sin or that of his parents? And Jesus says, no, it was for the glory of God that the works of God might be revealed in him. And Jesus uh, heals the man born blind and tells him to go and present himself to the religious leaders. And when he does that, 
um, he is given the third degree. And this guy is probably a teenager, maybe in his young 20s, and he's a little feisty about it. Remember, he's been blind all his life, and all of a sudden he can see. And there's that great line where he says, this is all I know. I once was blind, but now I see, which, of course, inspired John Newton. And I wanted, uh, when he wrote Amazing Grace, and I want to just share part of John 9, verses uh, 24 through 34 with you. So for the second time, the Pharisees called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know this man, that is Jesus, is a sinner. The man born blind answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. The Pharisees said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And the Pharisees reviled him, saying, you are his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, Jesus, we do not know where he comes from. The man born blind answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where Jesus comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. The Pharisees answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. It is a great passage of showing spiritual pride and the inner ring at work. The Pharisees cannot admit that anyone could possibly be doing the work of God if he's not one of them. And they revile this poor man who has experienced this incredible gift of regaining his sight. There's no word anywhere of joy on their part about that. All they care about is their power and preserving it. And the young man challenges them very boldly. And their response to him is, you were born in utter sin. And then they cast him out. And of course, the beautiful thing, if you know the rest of the passage, is that Jesus goes and finds him. Jesus found him the first time and he was blind. And then he finds him again after he has been healed. It is a beautiful thing of Jesus going and seeking after the lost. But Lewis knows all too well the appeal of the center ring, because particularly in academia, this topic is rife. And so fleeing from embracing any kind of inner ring is vitally important. And Lewis, in his essay, uh, which was given originally as a lecture to students at Regents College, reminds us of the danger of embracing the idea of the inner ring. 
And then whenever we feel like we have got the inside scoop and we start glorying in that and holding it over the heads of others like we see the Pharisees doing here, we are in serious spiritual danger. It is also a reminder uh, when we look at the Pharisees that here you find the religious leaders, those people entrusted with the saving mission of God, we find them so absorbed with their own agenda and preserving their own power that they literally take the Son of God, the Messiah, that they are supposed to be the ones who would recognize before anyone else, they take God's Son and put him to death. It is a reminder how really far off base we can get when the inner ring becomes our chief concern. And if you are scuba diving, I commend to you to read and mark and thoughtfully consider this essay of Lewis's, which I'll send out along with the email uh, next week with the PowerPoint for this. And then last but not least, the fifth habit, flee the temptation to believe that those who agree with you in every particular are the only real Christians. This is a particular danger uh, for those of us who are Orthodox and Evangelical in our faith. We rightly want to hold tightly to the Word of God, uh, and that must be the filter through which we view and test everything. But it is not a license for us to become Pharisees and to reject other people. And there is a great lesson from this um, in Jesus's attitude and in Paul's attitude. And I'm going to share with you two passages from the scriptures, the first from Mark chapter 9. In this passage, we have the following. Teacher, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me, for whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. This is an important passage, and it is a great reminder of that truth from one of the Reformation German theologians. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, diversity. In all things, charity. It is a great reminder to us that we are to be united in the core truths of the gospel. Those things are essential, and there must be unity there, and who Jesus is, and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and the things that the scriptures tell us are essentials. But in things that are not essentials, there can be diversity. There can be diversity in forms of worship. There can be diversity in understandings about ministry. There are many areas in which there can be diversity, and we are not to look down on or feel superior or pharisaical about those who have different 
interpretations of scripture in these things. And in everything, we are to be guided by love and charity. Jesus tells us that those who are working in his name are uh, not against him. And then there is a great reminder from Paul um, in 1 Corinthians 3, and I'm going to read from two different parts of that great chapter. And Paul says this, For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, for it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. It is a great reminder that we are not to be in competition with other Christians. We are to be about laying a foundation and building upon it the best that we can, understanding that the only foundation is the word of God and Jesus Christ himself. But when we believe that only those who are exactly like us and believe exactly like us and agree with us about every single thing are the only real Christians, we cut ourselves off from the body of Christ. We are just like that passage in Corinthians where Paul says, no part of the body can say to another, I don't need you. We need to learn from those who are different from us uh, when we hold the essentials together. We need to understand the beauty of the body of Christ, and we need to lean into that, and we need to practice the costly love that Jesus reminds us of over and over and over again in his word. So that brings us to uh, the end of this wonderful chapter 24, and it reminds us that we need to be particularly alert to not becoming Pharisees in our own age. Remember that Jesus's time uh, was spent not with the people that were approved by the religious establishment, but with people who were on the margins of his society. And remember, as much as we like to look at the Pharisees and think, I would never have acted like that. I would never have done those things. I would never even have thought anything like that. Remember that most of the Pharisees probably had pretty good intentions and thought they were doing the right thing, which is a reminder to all of us about why these uh, attacks that Satan wants to do in this particular area can be so very damaging to the Christian faith. So we need to be on our guard and we need to remember 
the truth of that quotation from letter eight with which we end each time. So let's use that quotation again. Our cause is never more in danger, that is the cause of Satan. That cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we confess to you how often pride invades our lives, how often we think we are better than others, or how we may look down on those who differ from us in some small area of spiritual practice. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to the sin of pride, that you would help us to cultivate a healthy humility, to remind ourselves that we are hopeless like that tax collector, and our only plea is a plea for mercy and grace at the foot of the cross because of the saving reach of your embrace. Lord, we pray that you would fill us with love for your people, uh, those who know you and those who don't, and that people would be drawn to your kingdom through the witness of your church and its people. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's great to be with you tonight. I look forward to being with you in person someday soon. And uh, I commend the great riches of this letter to you and hope that you will have a great week of annoying the devil. God bless you.